It is a privilege to be here as always, but it is a privilege on Father's Day. Shout out to all the fathers. It is a privilege to go through this passage of scripture with you today. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now, Nathan, if you remember last week, if you were here last week, Nathan set us up really well for this week. His third point was the result of faith. Okay, the result of faith. He didn't really touch on it too much in the preceding verses of chapter 5 because he knew that this is kind of what Paul was leading up to. This passage, Romans 5, 1 through 11, Martin Luther deemed as the happiest passage in the book of Romans. So if you recall, when we first started off, we start off with the series, The Sinfulness of Sin, right? That was the dark and gloomy days. But it has to be dark and gloomy in order to see the goodness of God. And so we go through the heart of the gospel. That's the, the mini-series that we're in now in the big series of Romans. The last couple of weeks, we saw how Abraham was justified by faith in Romans and in the hope that he had. And then the great picture of God's big plan. And this was God's plan all along to bring the nations to himself. And we continue in the heart of the gospel by seeing the blessings of justification. That's the title of the sermon, Blessings of Justification. So through it all, during this entire time, leading up till now, you may be asking, this information is all well and good, but what does it mean? Like, what does it imply? What does this mean for me? Okay, I know, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus came and was perfect and was given as a sacrifice for our sins and that we're justified by faith, but what does that mean? Like, what does that mean for me now? Like, that, that's great, I, that, I get it here, but like, I get that I'm justified here by faith. But what does that mean? What does that imply? It means a lot of blessings that Paul is gonna go into here. This seems to be the question that Paul's addressing and he's kind of building up to and that he answers in Romans 5, verses one through 11. If you're using the Pew Back Bible, it's on page 886. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can feel free to take that one with you. You see, like I said, Martin Luther called this the happiest passage in Romans. And you can really see this in Paul's tone. Through this whole entire part, these 11 verses, he's like a TV salesman trying to sell knives. And he says, but wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. And you think you're at the end of the commercial and then it's like, but wait, there's more. That's what Paul really sounds like here. It keeps getting better and better. More than that, more so, he keeps adding on. It keeps compounding on itself. And what we see are six blessings that really kind of compound and build upon each other. And these blessings are the blessings of justification. Now that we are justified, so what? We're here to answer that question today. So the sermon idea for today is Paul reveals to us the blessings we experience in justification. Paul reveals to us the blessings that we experience in justification. Let's read. Start in verse one. Therefore, 
Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we're still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good, re- for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The first of these six blessings, as we see in verse one, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our first blessing, we have peace with God. And we can only have peace because, what? Because we have conflict. We have peace because there is conflict. The holy God delivers his people from his just wrath. And he does this by supplying that which only he can supply. So we were nothing short of, en- nothing short of enemies of God. And yet Jesus, the peace child, was offered as payment for this war to bring peace and restoration between creator and creation. See, Cooper talked about this, our intern, he talked about this from Ephesians 2 a couple of Sunday evenings ago, a couple of Sunday evening services ago. And he shared from Ephesians 2 and said that we were enemies of God, we were hostile in nature, we were children of wrath, and that's what we were. There was conflict, but now we have peace with God. You see, the eternal ceasefire has been called June 6, 1944. What comes to mind? Even if you're not a history nerd like me, you may be able to get this one. Uh, We just celebrated the 75th anniversary of D-Day. So then what what about December 7th, 1941? Does that ring a bell? I see a lot of nods out there. That was Pearl Harbor. And these days are remembered as some of the most destructive days during World War II. But then let me ask you this. What about May 8th, 1945? What about the lesser known September 2nd, 1945? These dates may not stick out in our minds as much, but they should. Because May 8th was VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. And September 2nd was VJ Day, Victory in Japan Day. Most importantly, this was when peace was realized after six long years of the most destructive war known to humanity. 
during World War II. It was ended on these days. But you see, we've been in a much longer war with more dire eternal consequences, a war that started with the fall of Adam, but praise be to God that the peace was declared on Calvary. That is our peace day. That is why we now have peace with God. And today, if you are not a believer, if you're not a child of God, you can have peace with God today. I urge you to lay down your futile weapons, trying to do it on your own, trying to earn your own salvation. Lay them down at the foot of our marker of peace, the cross. Lay it down at the cross. You may have peace with God today. But see, the application isn't necessarily just, it's not just for unbelievers. For mature believers here as well, there's also application with this. Do you realize that you can now never experience the punishment of being separated from God. You are never punished and will never experience punishment for your sins. Now you'll receive discipline from your sins as a good father would, but never punishment. So Cody, you may ask, what's the difference? What's the difference between punishment and discipline? Well, punishment satisfies justice, but discipline ascribes to love. See, punishment satisfies justice, and that's what Jesus did on the cross. But discipline ascribes to love. And our good father disciplines us as his children. You are a child of God, and you only experience the peace of God. You will never experience the punishment of God. So as believers, you and I, we have peace with God because we're justified. Moving on, verse two. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The second point we have, our first was peace with God. And now we have the promise of perfection, the promise of perfection. You and I, as children of God, who have peace with God, we now stand in grace. As believers, we stand in grace. That's the state that we see here. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith. So we already talked about faith into this grace in which we stand. We're never leaving this, this stance. And we, while we stand here, we rejoice. That's a good word. I understand why they picked that word. I just wish they used a different word that would kind of elaborate a little bit more. That word would be boast. The NIV actually uses boast for all all the occurrences of rejoice in this passage. Boast or exult. That's kind of an older word for boast and rejoice. It's like rejoicing boastfulness. We boast in what? The hope of the glory of God. We stand in in anticipating the glory of God to to be revealed to us. We know that it's coming and we stand here in this grace looking forward to that glory. We know how the book ends. Revelation 21. 
Verses one through four. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be more, any more mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is, that, is a glimpse, it's a picture of the glory that has to be revealed. The promise that we look forward to, that promise is perfect. We stand like a bride waiting for the groom, the groom to return from preparing the home that we're going to stay in. But he's given us the blueprints of the home. We know what it's going to look like. And we stand here in our limited time and limited bodies in, our, in this fallen world looking forward to a hope of glory that is going to be revealed. And that gives us hope. We've got this promise of perfection. If you just turn over to Romans 8, verse 18. We know, we know there's more coming because he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not worth comparing. Our view of this promise, we know that this is coming. So how do we apply this? We know how the book ends. We know how the story ends. We know that Jesus is victorious now and will remain victorious and show that he is victorious in eons to come, billions and trillions of years. But how do we apply this? Simply with this, our view of this promise should inform our weakness now. Our view of this promise, knowing that it's coming, should inform us now that there is hope. But you may be sitting there a little dissatisfied with that. You may say, I hear you, Cody, but what about now? What about my struggling marriage? What about the death of a loved one? What about the pain that I keep experiencing week in and week out? What about cancer treatments? What about X, Y, or Z? Paul that's where Paul's going, verses three through five. We know that we have this promise of perfection because we're justified. It doesn't just stay there. It also gives us our third point, hope in hardship. Verses three through five, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what sufferings is he talking about here? What sufferings is he specifically addressing here? Well, it really seems like he's painting with pretty broad brushstrokes. I mean, you can definitely bank on the suffering that his listeners and his readers are going through in Rome. Severe persecution. A crazy emperor is going to eventually burn down the city of Rome and blame it on the Christians. And right now he's using them 
as torches to light his garden. And the lamppost is they're on crosses. So you can definitely have that in mind. You can definitely say, okay, it's definitely, he's, he's addressing persecution here. So persecution is most definitely one of the things that Paul has in mind, but let's not forget the other forms of suffering that even Paul endured. Like natural disasters, shipwrecked, experienced a thorn in the flesh, and we don't know the exact nature of that, and definitely various trials of temptation. So let's summarize these sufferings into three categories. Our first that he's, he's addressing here, our first category of suffering is physical sufferings that we experience and others experience. So physical sufferings. Next is temptation. And third, persecution. This is, that's just from me. That's just from what I've gathered from this text of, of what he's trying to address with suffering because that's the suffering that we experience as believers and have experienced as believers from the get-go. So let's let this passage, let, let's let this passage address these sufferings, our sufferings that we're experiencing now. If you or a loved one are experiencing physical sufferings, I want to encourage you with 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read it over you. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. This, this body, praise the Lord, is wasting away, but inwardly is being renewed in God. For the things that we see, Paul continues, for the things that we see, they're transient, but the things that, we are, that are unseen are eternal. Your physical sufferings, let, let this passage inform your physical sufferings. Next, if you're being tempted, I want, to, I want you to know that we have a, a great high priest who was tempted just as you were. And we rely on him for victory because he overcame, as it says in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace, and grace to help in time of need. If you are persecuted, our third category, I want to encourage you that the world persecutes you because it persecuted your master first. As he says in John 15, Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He also says in Matthew 5, that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So suffering leads to endurance, endurance leads to character, and finally hope. We're gonna wrap this all together. We rejoice in our sufferings because as we look down this chain of suffering, endurance, character, and finally what? Hope. We rejoice in our sufferings because they are the means by which we cling to hope. Because suffering leads to endurance, endurance leads to character, and character down the line, it leads to hope. So we rejoice in our sufferings because they are the means by which we are able to cling to this hope. And what does he say about this hope? 
And this hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's verse five. So this hope is not, it's not something that like we long for, like we kind of hope for, but we know we're never gonna get. Like my dog, I know it's wishful thinking to think that he's gonna turn into a hunting dog. Like I just, I just know that's never gonna happen. He, he's, he's dumb as a box of rocks. So it's like, I know it's never gonna happen, but that's not the kind of hope that he's talking about here. He's talking about the hope that is backed up by, what does he say? The love of God has been poured into our hearts. So we know that we are loved by God and that gives us hope. Like we experientially know that God loves us. Why do we know that? Because the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. So this hope is sure. And this hope, we are able to cling to this hope. Why? Because of sufferings. So we don't just sit here with sufferings and say, Pity, pitiful me, we say, no, thank God I'm going through this suffering because I have hope in Jesus. This, I'm able to say, I have hope in Jesus. I boast in the cross. I boast in Jesus because I'm not looking just to the things of this world. I'm looking to Jesus. This suffering, if all we say is just, okay, this suffering, there is no hope in suffering, that mentality is not informed by the gospel. The gospel gives us hope. And the hope is, one of the blessings of justification is hope in the midst of hardship because we can look to Jesus. Fourth, we have a demonstrated love. We have a demonstrated love. God demonstrated his love to us at the right time. For while we're still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This doesn't mean Oh, at the, at, when we're at, it, it means that we were at our worst, but it doesn't mean that like we get progressively worse. If we don't know God, we're at our worst. So it's kind of like level playing field. So at the right time, when we were in our deepest, darkest need, Christ died for us. While we we're still weak at the right time, Christ died for you and me. Christ died for the worst enemy possible. You and me. Verse seven, this is, this is the best that human love gives, gets. Verse seven, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. So he's like, the best that human love can produce is dying for a good person. That's the best that, if, if we're just left up to ourselves, we're gonna love someone, all we're gonna do is just love someone that's kind of good. Like we're not gonna die for, we're not gonna die for our enemy right? But we by ourselves would never die for our enemy. So to illustrate and apply this, if we were to model Christ's love to which he showed us, we would go and love our enemies to the point of dying. You see, God was the first missionary. He sent his son, he came and showed love by giving his life for his worst enemies. That's what Ephesians 2 addresses. And later on, it calls us enemies of God. See, this might make you rethink missions just a little bit. Like, you think going to Iraq is bad? You think going to Iran is bad? You think going to India is bad? Imagine a holy and perfect God coming to save a sinful humanity who were rebellious and enemies of God. So your child comes to you and they're grown. 
and they say, you can tell the Lord has really gripped their heart and they say, mom, dad, God, I think he's calling me to Iran. I've got to go share the gospel in Iran. Mom, dad, I've got to go share the gospel in Iraq. Mom, dad, I've got to go share the gospel to India. I've got to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. We can tell that the Lord has just gripped their heart, but what's our inclination? Are you sure? I heard, what about Puerto Rico? I hear Jamaica's nice. I'll even let you, what, what about, we'll do this. You stick around for two more years, finish school, and then, then go to Brazil. How about that? I'll let that one slide. But what this shows is a lack of gospel knowledge because it neglects who was reached first. We were reached first, the enemies of God. You and me. But God shows his love to us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. If God, 1 John 4, 11, if God so loved us in this way, by sending his son to die on the cross for us, we ought to love each other. One of the blessings we have in justification is a love that has been demonstrated. It has been demonstrated because he stepped down into earth to his enemies and gave himself up for us, giving of self for the benefit of others. That's what love is. And that's what Jesus did for you and for me. Next, verse nine. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, this is our fifth point, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We have remission from wrath. We have Remission just means saved from. I'm trying to go the old Baptist alliteration way, trying to all sound the same way and have the same words and stuff. Remission from wrath, right? So one of the words that we need to try to address here that's gonna really encapsulate all this, Blake talks about this a lot and we've addressed this before, the word propitiation. You see, propitiation is defined, propitiation is to remove us from the wrath of God that we deserved, in order to do that, Christ died as the propitiation from our sins. So he is the substitute and he's also the satisfactory sacrifice. So he just, he comes in and he's able to do it because he was perfect. And he's able to then impute that righteousness onto us. So that's kind of what we're talking about. There has to be, we have to talk about the wrath of God. Why? Because we're saved from the wrath of God. See, people say we are saved from sin. Oh yeah, Christ died to save us from sin. Are we? Let's, let's think about this a little bit. Just hang on, hang on with me. I mean, like we do sin, yes. And we have sinned, yes. And now have the ability to not sin now that we're saved. Like we, we can choose Christ. We can follow him. We can do righteousness. So no, we weren't really saved from sin. We were saved from the consequences of sin meaning the wrath of God. When we are saved, we are saved from the wrath of God. And we can say that because we earned it. And what is the wrath of God? Condemnation in hell. 
See, we were legally obligated to obey God's law. We can't, so we earn the consequences, which is God's wrath. And since we have been justified by the blood of Jesus through faith, we are saved from the wrath of God. We can now spend eternity with God in heaven, not in hell, experiencing the wrath of God for eternity. That's why the wrath of God is so important. God is holy and just and hates sin and is right and just to condemn sin. See, in Isaiah 53... It says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to pour out the wrath onto him, onto the servant, onto Jesus. So how do we apply this? If we have been saved from the wrath of God, if we experience the remission from wrath, how do, we, how do you apply that? Honestly, with gratitude. Just with gratitude. The believer today, if you're a believer here today, the world is the closest thing to God's wrath that you'll ever see. And if you're an unbeliever, this world is the closest thing to not experiencing God's wrath you'll ever see. In other words, believer, this is the closest thing to hell that you'll ever experience. Unbeliever, if you're here today, you do not know Jesus Christ. If he has not, if you not put your faith in him to save you from being condemned, this is the closest thing to heaven you will ever see. The beauty of the gospel is, is that today you can repent from your sins and turn to Jesus and you'll be covered by his sacrifice. Because we're justified, we're not under the wrath of God. Lastly, Verses 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's our last point. One of the blessings of justification is that we have received reconciliation. Now, reconciliation is kind of a scary theological word that really gets thrown around a lot of times. We don't necessarily feel the full weight of it. So we're going to dive into that. We're going to double click on this word, reconciliation. It's defined as the removal of enmity. Enmity just means your enemies. The removal of enmity and the restoration of fellowship between two parties. So you're like this, you're coming against each other. You remove that and you're actually able to put in bonded fellowship. Okay, that's what reconciliation means. Because Jesus lives, we can now live and walk in this new status and live new, resurrected, regenerated lives. Because he lives, our hope is sure and secured. We're reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we shall be saved by his life. He came up from the grave and rose from the grave so that we can have community with him and with God. You see, uh, turn back over to Romans 8, verses 15 to 17. This is what you received. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. I threw the and daughters in there. But whom we cry, by whom we cry, Abba, 
Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In short, you're not just kind of saved and then you're kind of allowed to go pat you on the head and go on your merry way. No, you're brought in to the family. It wouldn't be reconciliation if he just kind of made you right and then you're gone. It's reconciliation because he brings you up, raises you from the dead and brings you into fellowship with him as a child of God. You are reconciled to God. To illustrate this, track with me. It's one thing for a judge to substitute a guilty person with an innocent person. And that's what, that's what God did with Jesus, right? Us, we were guilty, but then Jesus came and took our punishment, Right? Yes. It's one thing for a judge to do this. But then it's another thing for a judge to then set that prisoner free, put the combination on the innocent person, and then take the once guilty person and say, you are my child. We were guilty on the stand. And then Christ came in and paid the debt that we could never pay and took the consequence of our sin And through faith, we are declared righteous. And not only that, we are justified by faith. But that means, believer and Christian, you are reconciled to God. That means you're not just over on yourself by yourself. You are a child of God. And if a child, you're an heir, heir with Jesus, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we be glorified with him. To take this one step further, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 21. We'll have that up on the screen. You don't need to turn there. So if we are reconciled to God, what do we now do? Listen to this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then what? Look, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In conclusion, the Christian life, the justified life is one of true blessing. Because God takes what was once enemies and adopts them as his sons and then goes and sends them out into the ministry of reconciliation. You go do that more. Go bring other sons and daughters to himself. Be a part of the ministry of reconciliation. Maybe as we review all these blessings, we have peace with God. We have the promise of perfection. But not only that, we have hope within hardship. We also have the example of love. We have been demonstrated love. We have remission of wrath. And last, we have received reconciliation. How do we apply this? 
Maybe you're here and you've never considered these blessings before. Maybe you thought it was just a list of rules of do's and don'ts and maybe you didn't realize the joy to be had within justification. I just encourage you, let these truths just wash over you again. Let these truths that there is these blessings now that we are justified. And maybe, this is probably a large population of which most of the time this is where I am. Maybe you're here and you've heard these things and you're, you're getting angry because you know you love God, but you're just not really feeling these things. You know that you're a Christian, but you're not necessarily just feeling them. You know, you're not feeling it. My encouragement to you is if you need prayer, we have elders after service, seek prayer from them. Be encouraged by this. But what I tell college students all the time is when, you, when you're not feeling something, one of these truths, pound it from your head, pound it into your head. Pound it over and over again into your head until it reaches down into your heart. And then once it's there in your heart, pound it into your heart until it reaches down into your hands. You're able to practice these truths. It's not just knowledge. It's knowledge that is believed. It's not just knowledge that's believed and known. It's knowledge that is applied. Keep being faithful. Apply these truths. Pound it into your head. This is not bondage. This is true freedom. So let us carry on this ministry of reconciliation.